Welcome to the Landmark Apostolic Church's podcast. Just because you don't feel Jesus or he'll hear Jesus openly rebuke you doesn't mean that you, you should be feeling some kind of conviction for the sin that you're doing. And if you got the Holy Ghost and you're doing something wrong and you know it's not wrong, that's conviction. That's when you stop what you're doing. Instead of feeding into it and consuming it and your, your, your spirit that's full of light slowly gets tarred and nasty and mucky until you can no longer feel the presence of God anymore. He's not just going to pluck something out of your life because you can't deal with it. But he will give you an exit. Yes. He'll give you a way out. There is nothing in this world that tempts you beyond that which you cannot get free of it. Yes. And that's scripture and you can take it to the bank. James chapter 1, open up your Bibles to verse number 8, we'll start there. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as a flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withers the grass, and the flower falls off and the grace of the fashion of it perishes. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. Verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, when it has done what it was supposed to do, what it intended to do, brings forth death. I want to preach you this morning all in from the table to the tree. Amen. I ask that you would pray for me this morning as we move along through this message. You can be seated. Again, I want to thank everybody for coming here today. This topic, it's a... Uh, I was struggling with a way to present it. i got to be honest with you. I'm not a politically correct person. Um, and I believe that truth, when it's delivered, has to be delivered a certain way. Because we have in the presence of any church body, any group of people, people that are brought up differently, people that have different manners in which they grew up, different cultures and customs. And some things just need to be delivered differently. So when the word of God is brought by somebody that's ministering the word, it has to be delivered almost in a way that uh, can be fed to everybody. And that's what's so awesome about the Bible is it's written just a specific way that it can appeal to every person. As they read it, they can either be offended by it or they can receive it. Those are the only two options. But I'm so glad today that the youth are down here this morning because I really feel that this church message today, it's like an all-church message. So if there's any single topic in the Bible that I would uh, have to pick that is universally shared among adults, Young adults, middle-aged, seniors, 
I have to say that it's the subject of temptation because there's no other force in this world that drives us to sin more than our own selves. Sin is the product of temptation, and temptation is the product of our own desires. Can you put up that second little graphic? I just want to show everybody something. And I actually just woke up to this this morning. She had it on her Facebook page, and I got to looking at that. I'm like, you, I'm literally going to talk about this this morning. So if you could, just throw it on the thumb drive or throw it up on the laptop or on the, on the screen. This is so true. Sin is sin. We as individuals, as people, seem to think that whenever we have a sin in our life, we either can minimize it, so we appear as one of those tiny little specks on top, or we can maximize it and let it drive us into a worst-case position. But as you can see, the way God sees things, it's all neutral. Because sin affects everybody equally. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, young, old, uh, you know, middle-aged. Sin affects everybody equally. It puts us all on level ground. There's no sin that's not first conceived by the pairing of lust and enticement. It's a simple equation to have uh, uh, that's ever even been constructed. It's really, it's kind of like a two-pronged, uh, formula, if you will. Lust plus enticement equals temptation. So if you think about it this way, for example, who's all heard of the carrot on a string or the carrot on a stick? It's kind of an old adage. You, you hang out a carrot in front of a donkey and you can get him to move forward because donkeys are stubborn, right? Sometimes you can't get them to do what you want them to do. So you hang out a carrot on a string in front of them and they chase after the carrot. Now, the desire is that carrot. He wants the carrot. Putting it out in front of him is the enticement. Therein is the temptation. But temptation by itself is not sin. It's not until lust has conceived that the sin is brought forth. The formula that I would like everybody to remember this morning is that when temptation and lust are married together, then sin is born. Remember like this, temptation plus indulgence equals sin. So just because something is tempting us does not mean it's sin itself, but when we take that temptation and we indulge in it, then sin has been conceived. And that then will drive us to do many different things, which I'll touch on here in a minute. But just like in math class, now temptation plus sin equals, uh, equals sin. Uh, temptation plus indulgence, I'm sorry, equals sin. Just like in math class, so you can take those two things, you can twist them around and say indulgence plus temptation equals sin. It doesn't matter how you marry the two, it will always equal sin. So who in here doesn't lust after something? I'll, tell, I'll put two hands in the air. Because there's always something that's appealing to this old flesh. So who among you isn't tempted? We're all tempted. Yes. Again, I'll put two hands in the air. Yes. We all do, and we all are. It's the square root of humanity. It's what happened in the garden. It's what happened in the beginning. It wasn't never God's design, but it is how things are now. Yes. We are struggling in this world to deal with a problem in our life called sin. And we have to learn to manage this thing, or it will drive us forward and cause us to do one or two things. 
either go down or go up. We can accept it and then deal with it and, 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 and just uh, bring it into our lives and cradle it and indulge in it and let it swallow us whole. Or we can reject it, rebuke it, repent of it, and go the opposite direction. The entire Bible is filled with stories of temptation and lust. Literally every story in the Bible has one element of these in it. And I can sit here all day long and cover stories in the Bible. And we'll be sitting here by, the, by 12 o'clock tonight and I still won't be through all of it. There is a lot to be learned from the stories of Scripture. But after listening to uh, Brother Rice's message last week, I spoke with him and and told him I was going to be doing a part two to that, to that message. And uh, if you remember, like last week, we, uh, uh, we heard about Judas. We don't really hear a lot of uh, Bible studies on Judas. But Judas, his life, his story, I've spent the last week diving into it. And let me tell you, there are a lot of things to learn from Judas Iscariot. I feel there's a lot to be said about his story. It's one that we can all glean things from. There's a strong theme that we can all hear and receive and walk away a better person. One of the greatest joys I have when I get into the studying scriptures, and really it's the fire that gets in me. And sometimes I find, like, I'm not going to say I'm different than anybody else. I'm the same. I, I, I get that. But sometimes you lose the fire. You know, to, to you just get tired of studying this, or you get tired of reading that, you get tired of doing that, so you just kind of step away. You know, you just, it's just life. But when I get in those positions and I start feeling that way, I'm like, God, please bring that fire back inside of me. And I read scriptures like, encourage yourself in the Lord and stir up the gift. I, I get those things, and I'm like, you know what? Let's just do a little Bible study. Yeah. And those kind of things, those jewels and those gems that I find when I do those kind of studies are amazing. And that's what drives my hunger and my thirst for the scripture on forward. And it's happened just this week, so it's like, man, I, you know, I've been studying the Word for a lot of years, and I was, uh, from 1994, I've been, I started fasting and, and praying and reading God's Word, and, and that's over 20 years ago. And you take that Word and you hide it away in your heart, and there's not a whole lot anybody can pull over you, you know, they, they can't. You tuck it away in your heart, and it's a little bit hard to have the wool pulled over your head. And, you know, people can't really fool you so much. You know, you can't be lured away as easily because you got it tucked away. When you identify something that's wrong, you know it yeah. right here. Yes. So I want to read a portion of Scripture to you just to kind of set up the theme here. What's going on is Jesus is getting ready for the, the Passover feast, and he's got his disciples together, and he has taken them and uh, washed his disciples' feet. And when he is done, and I'm going to be reading from John chapter 13, verse 12 through 30. You can follow along if you want to. If, if not, it's okay. I'm going to be reading from 12 to 30, kind of interjecting some thoughts along the way. John 13, verse 12. So after he, talking about Jesus, had washed their feet, referring to the disciples, and had taken his garments and was set down, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you do well, for so I am. If I then, 
your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash each other's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly. And usually when Jesus says that, he wants you to listen close. Truly, truly, as if he says anything that's not true. Truly, truly, you better listen to me, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent me. If you know these things, happy are ye that do them. I want to stop right there for just a second. Jesus just washed their feet. He went on to use an object lesson for his disciples, but suddenly he switched gears rather subtly, saying, the servant is not greater than his Lord, just like the one being sent is not greater than the one sending him. So he's washed feet. Now he's talking about sending people. Yes, there's a dual lesson in what Jesus is talking about here. He never taught anything in one vein. It was always two veins or two schools of thought when he said something. He was always talking to the simple-minded in such a way that they had something literal to grab onto. He was also making a spiritual and an eternal reference. You, when you read scripture, you have to read it in a two-pronged way. What is the spiritual lesson that Jesus is trying to say to me? And, and in, in the physical way, how can I take this and apply it to my life? But he says the servant is not greater than his Lord, just like the one being sent is not greater than the one sending him. There was a transition right here in this example that moves us from foot washing to this comment in verse 18. Jesus says, I speak not of you all. What did he mean by that? I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell it before you, or excuse me, but now I tell you before it come that when it has come to pass, you may believe that I am he. And then again, he says it again, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that receives whoever, whoever I send receives me. And he that receives me receives him that sent me. I want to stop right there again. Jesus said something confounding that his disciples didn't pick up on. The words that Jesus said kind of choked him up a little bit. He knows uh, that, what he's, uh, that he's about to be betrayed by someone that's been by his side for the past three years, right? He knows that he's, not, uh, uh, that, he's, that he's about to send him off to conclude that which has already been set in motion. Jesus said, he that receives whomever I send receives me. I can imagine as I was sitting in a church or if I was sitting at the feet of Jesus or at the table of Jesus and he's, and he's saying these things, he's got to be talking about the Lord receiving me because the Lord sent me, so therefore whoever um, I send, um, he's going to, they're going to receive him also. But there's something very deep going on here because he knows that he's about to be betrayed. Yes. Verse 21, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one upon another, doubting of whom he spake. 
Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples who, who Jesus loved. Remember this part of the story, this book was written by John, so he always referred to himself as the other disciple or the disciple or the one whom Jesus loved. And verse 24 says, Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, so talking to John now, that he should ask Jesus who it was for whom he spake. Verse 25, he then laying on Jesus' breast, or John said unto Jesus, Lord, who is it? Who are you talking about that's going to betray you? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall have a sop or a morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop or the morsel of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered him, then said Jesus unto him, God, can you imagine this? Whatever you're going to do, go and do it quickly. And that is when Jesus sent Judas. Judas was about to be received by somebody that was going to take Jesus, fulfilling the comment that Jesus made, he that receives whoever I send, receives me. Verse 28, now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto them. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag, and talk about the money bag, Jesus or Judas was actually the person that carried the money bag. That Jesus had said unto him, "By those things that we, by those things that we have uh, have need of against the feast, that he should give something to the poor." Verse thirty. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. So now Judas, Judas has left uh, to get together. Jesus had, was having with his disciples, but. What I find most significant here is that it was common back then that every person that sat at a meal together would dip their own bread. Like we would take the dinner plate, we'd take the bread, every person would break his meal and he would dip it in the dip or, or place it in the dip, the, the little spices, the little liquids to soften up the bread a little bit. Everybody did it themselves. But Jesus on this rare occasion it wasn't completely uncommon so it didn't freak out the the disciples when they saw it happen but he broke off the piece of bread himself and gave it dipped it and gave it to Judas so this was significant because by dipping his sop for him what he was saying was in the Old Testament way, the Old Testament culture, you are my friend. You are at my table. You are my friend. You are my guest. Please don't do this. Please don't let me down. Please, whatever you're going to do, don't do this. But he took it. He ate it. And Jesus knew that it was a done deal. It was the Lord's final appeal to Judas that he'd rather be considered his friend than Judas be his traitor. One of two things happen when we get caught up in the middle or lost in the midst of sin. Either our hearts are softened, we realize what we've done, we find an altar, a place it could be a chair at home, it could be the bed, it could be drive to work. As long as it comes from your heart, 
you repent of it. Which means you turn away from it, brother. You don't keep on it. You don't say, I'm sorry, and have it tucked away in the back of your mind. I'm going to get back to it again later. Repentance means I'm going to turn away from it, and I'm not going back to it. That is what repentance means. But sometimes we get caught up in something that has so distracted us, it is so deeply rooted and ingrained in our carnality that we can't get away from it. We are tethered to it. And we can't seem to break the vicious cycle of sinning, leaving, sinning, leaving, sinning, leaving, coming back to it over and over again. And what it does inside of us is it causes a state of turmoil. It causes a state of internal distraction. And it ruins us because we, it forms almost a cocoon or a callus over our soul. And we, can no longer, we reach this point where we can no longer feel the presence of God. We no longer feel a need to say, I'm sorry, Lord. Or I no longer feel a need to repent and move on away from a situation. But all you can think about is getting back to that addiction. All you can think about is getting back to that thing that has control over your mind. And you just want to lust after it and get back to it over and again. Completely forgetting that feeling of what it was or what it is to repent. Or you can repent of it. You hearken, be softened towards it, or you can, you can allow your heart to be hardened so you no longer feel the Spirit of God. Those are the only two options. You live in it, or you deal with it and move on. But it has to be managed. Paul told the Corinthian church, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. He wasn't saying this because he's full of himself. What he was saying is, if you touch the throne of God as often as I do, you won't have so much division and conflict inside of you. Because the Corinthian church was so divided. They were arguing about everything from church positions to spiritual positions in leadership to uh, gender roles and things in the church. They argued about everything, and Paul had to address all this stuff. Because the church body is an example of what happens to an individual spirit. Like, it's like an example of an individual person. There's these conflicts inside of us. We're a bar of body. We have arms and legs and, and eyes. And everybody has a purpose in the church. Just like my arm has its purpose. My left arm has its purpose. I'm walking because my legs have a purpose. And you hear me because my voice has a purpose. It's just like that with the church. But inside when we let things conflict within us. And it drives me to do something that's not God's will. That thing needs to be plucked out and put away and that's what Paul was doing he was trying to address some fractures in the church because a double-minded man the scripture says is unstable in all his ways I work in a maximum security environment it's, only, it's Illinois' only maximum security hospital it's the only one like it in Illinois there's no one else that takes Illinois' most vile, I'll say vile, I don't care, criminal, criminally insane, probably better words, the most criminally insane mentally ill patients in the entire state of Illinois. The ones that all the hospitals across the state can't handle, they send them to Chester. And that's what, I have some brothers in here that's worked here in the past, and they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not a good place to work 
but I got 21 years almost locked in, so I'm just, I got four more years. God help me, I could do this. But we have this thing called a root cause analysis. Who's from here, who here is from the medical field? I know we got a nurse here. Um, any other nurses, doctors? Yeah. You know what a root cause analysis is? So you have something bad happen in the hospital, right? Everybody gathers together to find out what caused it. Because we don't know. we got to have everybody together, all professions, somebody from every single discipline in the entire hospital has to come and participate in this. We have to find out what happened. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but the bottom line is when we do a root cause analysis, we're asking why. I kind of took this root cause analysis thing and I applied it to Judas because I was curious. I wanted to know why. I'm just not satisfied knowing that Judas was betrayed Jesus because he wanted 30 pieces of silver. There's more to it. There's always more. And I was digging, and I wanted to know why. So my, I asked myself, why did Judas, Judas betray Jesus? Simple, for money. The Bible says in John 12 and 30, I'm sorry, John 12 and 6, talking about Judas, says he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what he put into it. Sometimes when we hear about Judas, we're only thinking about his role in, in the betrayal of Jesus. Now they came to get him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he kissed him on the cheek. But his story goes way back before that. His story goes way back three years prior when Jesus met him and said, I want you to follow me. And Judas was one of them. And he followed after Jesus. So then I asked myself, but why? Why was he a thief? You know, Jesus called somebody that was more apt, had more skill in the background of finances, and it was a man by the name of Levi. Yes. He was a financial guru. Yes. Levi was the financial expert. Why didn't Jesus give the money bag to him? Or maybe to Nathaniel, who the Bible says was a man who had no deceit. Yes. Think about it for a moment. Judas was taking money from the money bag without authorization. And the Lord knew it, though. You can't hide anything from Jesus. Just because he wasn't turning around and rebuking him openly in front of the disciples doesn't mean that Judas didn't know that he was doing wrong. And he lived that way for as long as he had the money bag. And I, my curiosity was so piqued. He was stealing coin from the money bag and doing it for whatever, spending it on whatever he wanted. He knew it was wrong and he kept doing it. As he followed Jesus, he heard these messages in Matthew 6, and they're all in Matthew 6. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal. Right. Jesus said also, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus also said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Right. So I ask you again, why did Jesus allow a thief to control the money bag? It would obviously make more sense to have the financial expert, you know, manage the money resources. 
Jesus knew that Judas was a thief, yet he let him manage the funds. There could be no other reason for this to me than to prove the point that Jesus made in Matthew 6. He was literally living the word. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6? He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Judas was carrying the money bag. I'm telling you that Jesus loved Judas. His heart was with Judas. He wanted him to see his mistakes. He wanted him to be able to overcome his temptation. He wasn't tempting him. But Jesus, knowing that money is not the be-all and the end-all, didn't care what that, that so much as money was being taken, that he was living an example to us by knowing that this is not my bank. So if Judas is going to manage the fund, if he's going to take monies from the fund, listen, I don't want him to take it, but he has to control his own impulses. Just because you don't feel Jesus or he'll hear Jesus openly rebuke you doesn't mean that you, you should be feeling some kind of conviction for the sin that you're doing. And if you got the Holy Ghost and you're doing something wrong and you know it's not wrong, that's conviction. That's when you stop what you're doing. Instead of feeding into it and consuming it and your, your, your spirit that's full of light slowly gets tarred and nasty and mucky until you can no longer feel the presence of God anymore. So Jesus, help us. The deeper lesson here is that Jesus knew Judas was taking money from the bag. He knew he was going to betray him, yet he did little to stop it. Who here believes the, that none of the disciples had sin? Sure they did. Of course they did. They were human. The difference was with Judas that his love was of money, what Paul did, how he repented after betraying Jesus three times. Peter, I mean, Peter betrayed Jesus three times. And he repented and he moved on. But Paul told Timothy something also about the love of money. In 1 Timothy 6 and 10, he says, For the love of money is root of all kinds of evil. Some people just leave it at that. Money is the root of all evil. Folks, money is not the root of all evil. The love. The love of money yes. is the root of all kinds of evil. What is the love of money? It's greed. What is greed? Selfish desire. The answer to our root cause analysis is that Judas was selfish. So much so that he refused to put himself aside for the cause of Christ. He had too much pride to find a place of repentance. The Bible even tells us this. He didn't repent. Instead, he went off and he hanged himself. And the Bible says that he's going to his own place. I'm not going to question what happened to Judas after he... That's God's business. But I want to be secure in my eternity. And I want you to be secure in your eternity. I don't want to go to my own place. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to be with the Lord. I don't want to be with you in heaven with the Lord. And I want to see those streets of gold. Gosh. So awesome. I can't wait. I think about it. The price. I can't remember. I think it was Pastor that mentioned it. The, we, we value gold at such a high price. You know, it's something. It's one of our most precious metals that we have here. And the comment was made that we're going to be walking on it. It's going to be, the streets will be paved with it. With gold. That's going to be what we're walking on. How does the story of Judas affect us as Christians? 
Our root cause analysis has revealed to us that the source of Judas' sin was selfishness. I ask you, what sin can be committed that doesn't go back to this? That doesn't go back to selfishness? What sin isn't about fulfilling some selfish desire within us? I have a few characteristics here that come with being double-minded. And this affects us all, adults, young people, because influences are one of them. You know, that which impresses you will influence you. So a double-minded person will desire to have a relationship with Jesus, but will have a strong, insatiable distraction that brings your flesh great desires. That's a double-minded person. I want a relationship with Jesus in this hand, but this insatiable desire is here, and I want that too. History is another thing. It takes time to build up the inner turmoil that makes a double-minded person. It doesn't happen overnight. We're not walking along all fine and giddy in the Lord, and all of a sudden we're double-minded. It's usually something small that's inserted into our life, and we accept it, we welcome it in, and it grows into something bigger and bigger and bigger. Before long, we're lost in it. Compromise. You always lean towards the one and forsake the other. You can't have equal parts in both. You will always compromise one or the other. Drive. A good, healthy relationship with Jesus will pull you deeper and deeper. You'll always want more and more. You'll never be able to get enough. Then again, the inner turmoil that when we get lost up in sin, that will drive us deeper and deeper into sin. Once it's been had, you'll want more and more. You'll never be able to get enough. We're at a disadvantage already. When we're born into this world, we're born with a sin nature. We're plugged physically into this world. We don't even know right from wrong. Our, 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 our spirit's already, you know, in a bad way because we're given to sin naturally. It happened in the garden. We're born with it. And we have to learn to become Christians. It's not natural anymore. We're not born saved. We have to find our salvation in Scripture. Yes. Habits. Once you've been drawn in by sin, you'll find it very easy to return to the same sin. Over time, the sin spreads to, to, to another sin. Eventually, it becomes easy to give in to whatever your fleshly desires want. Down the road, you'll feel stuck longing to have a relationship with Jesus again, but the Spirit is not in control. So you're just left there thinking about the time you used to be strong in the Lord, about the time you used to run up to the platform uh, and worship God and jump and sing and dance and clap your hands and, and, and have a jubilee moment with the Lord, but it'll be nothing more than a memory because your flesh has gained so much control over you that you can't even lift your arms in church in front of people anymore. You've already surrendered control to the desires of the flesh and the one is stronger than the other. Romans 7.23 says, But I see another law in my members. Well, Paul had it right. Talking about 
the war within his mind. He says, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. He's talking about the struggles that are within him, and we all have them. There's this thing inside of us that wants to do whatever it wants to do. But those of us who have seen the light and have tasted of his goodness, we have something better to cling to. We have a better path, a better way to go. So we are either subject to sin or subject to Christ. But we cannot be both. My head spins when I think about how Judas saw Jesus cast out devils, heal the sick, raise the dead, feed the multitudes, calm the storm, walk on water, cure leprosy, wither a tree, and so much more. Yet he would dip his hand into the money bag and think Jesus didn't know about it. The temptation for Judas was greater than his faith. Again, I ask why? Because he refused to subjugate his faith to Christ. He loved money. Having money in his pocket wasn't a bad thing. It was his lust to have to have it. He had to have the coin. And he was taking things that weren't his. The sad part about the story is that Judas' sins accumulated over time. It might have started with one coin. Then it became two coins. All along buying whatever he wanted. I can could, I could almost picture him leaving the group at times. You know, maybe they won't see me sneak out. I'm going to go and buy this thing for me. And it just built up over time. He thought nobody knew it, but there came a moment when it couldn't be covered up forever. Eventually, sin will build up enough momentum that it will become impossible to conceal. It happened to Judas, and it happens to us. Eventually, sin builds up so much strength that it cannot be hidden anymore. Parents, don't stop praying for your family. The people in your life who have once served God and have turned away from God or those who you've witnessed to and have not yet given themselves uh, to the Lord, pray for them. This Bible study gave me a new outlook. I'm telling you that, that, that if, if Jesus could lose one of his own, I kill myself sometimes emotionally because I feel like somebody in my family is lost. Or I've, I, I baptized my own son. He had stammering lips, at least stammering lips. If he didn't receive the whole, he at least had stammering lips at one point. And I murdered myself psychologically thinking, how did I let this happen? But I'm not better than Jesus. I had to see this fact and accept it for what it was. I taught him the best that I could. You're teaching your family the best that you can. You're praying for them. I pray for them. It's all that we can do. We lead them down the best road we can lead them. But at some point in their life, they have to make their own choices. Judas made his own choices. And yes, it hurt Jesus. And yes, he knew that he was doing it. But he kept doing it. And, and he had a chance to repent and he chose not to. It's not Jesus' fault. 
Every disciple spent as much time with, with Jesus. Everybody saw the same thing. But why Judas? Why didn't he do it? His sin. He was so engrossed in himself that he didn't even care. He reached a point where the things that he witnessed, the things that he saw, the things that he heard didn't even really phase him anymore. He wanted money. He was probably thinking, what can I spend this on? Or, and he already knew he had the plan made out well in advance. The Bible said he was seeking out opportunity from that point to betray Jesus. How far was he walking along with Jesus? And he's thinking, I wonder if I can, while he's distracted over here, I can go and get the chief priests and the officers and the guards that come back and get them then. He was thinking about that constantly, and he was guilt-ridden. That's got to be it. He was guilt-ridden, and he couldn't. I love when I have revelations when I'm preaching. He was guilt-ridden, and he couldn't help it. That, that He wasn't thinking anymore about what Jesus was doing or what Jesus was saying because he had so much guilt on his conscience. He just kept taking and taking and thinking about how he's going to betray, and the guilt was there, and it was strong, but he already made his deal with the devil, and he refused to repent. Young people, if you have parents who aren't in the truth, pray for them. Yes. Be an example to them. Yes. Because when it comes to sin, they're just as vulnerable as you are. Jesus let Peter follow him, knowing he would betray him, not once but three times. The other disciples were just as human. I'm sure they all had something on their heart. Just because the Bible doesn't mention him doesn't mean it wasn't there. Jesus could have taken the bag and assigned it to Levi, right? He could have, but that's not how Jesus rolls. He's not just going to pluck something out of your life because you can't deal with it. But he will give you an exit. Yes. He'll give you a way out. Yes. There is nothing in this world that tempts you beyond that which you cannot get free of it. Yes. And that's scripture, and you can take it to the bank. If I have something in my life, I have to deal with it myself. I need to control it myself. Yes, Jesus washes away the sins that I've already committed, but if I see something before me, and I'm not supposed to do it, I do it anyway. It's a new sin. And I willingly volunteered myself to it. I subjugated myself to it. Here's the awesome part. I'm going to ask my music to come. You're happy I'm done? I'm just... Praise the Lord. God said this. I love this. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. I knew what he meant. I knew what he meant. I love Brother Bishop with all my heart. <laughs> I thank God for you. We have this dual nature within us. The entire outer shell of it, the body, the part we call the body, it's temporary. It's the part of us that will die. And I hate to say this, I'm not being morbid, but the mortality rate for everybody in this building is 100%. That's right. 
young people, because you're young doesn't mean that you're not going to go at some point. We're all going to go. We're all going to go. This is temporary. But deep inside of this is something that will live forever. And the things that we do with our body that affects our soul can inhibit us from ever seeing the face of Jesus. That part of us will live forever. That spiritual side that we cannot see, touch, hear, or smell with our physical senses. That's the part of us that will live forever. The mortality rate of the human soul is 50-50. You're like, what do you mean by that? This physical being, the mortality rate is 100%. I will die. There's nothing I can do about it. And the older I get, the more I think about it. And I remember being young, I never thought about it. All I knew is I wasn't, I told myself I will not live beyond 30. I didn't want to. That was just my young mind talking to itself. But truth is, the older I got, the wiser I became. And I realized that there's things in life to live for. But what I mean by the mortality rate of the human soul being 50-50, here's the awesome part. We can choose to live or to die eternally. There is an eternal damnation and there is an eternal salvation. We can decide one of two places where we will live forever. Judas made his decision. He was given a free will and he gambled with it. He bet on the power, <coughs> excuse me, of the chief priests, conceding himself to the will of his own selfishness. Judas isn't any different than any of us in the sense that we all struggle with our own self. We're only different by the choices we make. We either stop taking from the money bag or we keep taking from the money bag. We repent or we don't repent. Please don't misunderstand me. The crux of Jesus' story is not his death. It was his life. He had both opportunity and motive to live for God or for himself. But he reached a fork in the road, a place in his life where he had to make a decision. I can do this thing and benefit from it physically where I can reject this thing and benefit from it eternally. But he was so deeply rooted and having no repentance in him for what he had been doing, he had lost the sensation to feel bad for what he was doing and that shame carried him to the tree. Sin will do that to us every time. It will blur our judgment It will make things seem conflicted and confusing, especially where prolonged sin is involved. 
the more we expose ourselves to it, the harder it is to get out of it. It's like quicksand. You step into it. If you get out fast enough, you're good. But if you sit there long enough in it, there'll come a point where you cannot pull yourself out. Thank you for listening to the Landmark Apostolic Church Podcast. You can follow this podcast for more great episodes from the Landmark family. If you are ever in our area, our doors are open on Sundays at 10 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thank you once again for listening to the Landmark Apostolic Church's podcast. God bless.